Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to a Pain Talk podcast. I thought I'd do something a little bit different with the podcast today and just present some cases that we can sort of work through. And these would be cases that we'd probably see every day in our regular practice. And just some of the challenges that come up, in particular around the talking points. The first case we're going to discuss is just talk a bit about opioids, especially when patients are coming to see us in clinical practice. And I always ask the question, is this the opioid that's contributing to the suffering or contributing to some of the side effects that the patient may have? So it's just basically looking at and understanding tolerance, dependency, and withdrawal and its impact on sleep, as well as on pain. So we have Doug. He's a 37-year-old male with persistent pain following an arthroscope of his right knee about four months ago. Since he's had that uh, arthroscope, his pain has really not settled. And in fact, he would tell you that the pain has gotten worse. Most of the investigations that have been done to look at what's contributing to his pain, including the risk of infection, as also the risk of something radiating to that knee, have been ruled out. So orthopedics basically said, there's nothing more that we can do for you, Doug. We're really finished investigating this. I'm not sure why that pain is persistent, but there doesn't seem to be anything dangerous or bad. So Doug's been on hydromorphone two milligrams and he's taking at least four a day, although he tells you he's probably taking about three of those at nighttime so he can get to sleep. So if we look at the math around this and depending on how you're doing those morphine equivalents, we can sort of suggest that that morphine equivalent would be about 40 milligrams a day in short acting opiate analgesic. But he tells you now that he's not able to sleep and mostly that he's getting up because the pain will not settle. He feels more restless. He feels that things are getting out of control. He's not able to get a handle on how much uh, the pain is getting worse. Uh, He's starting to run out of that hydromorphone early uh, and he's looking for something to help him with sleep. And this is where we need to take a deep. So these are patients that are coming in. They're very distressed, obviously. They're frustrated. Things are not getting better, and now they've got another issue, and that is they can't sleep. So if we look at the case overall, the two major uh, concerns are around his pain management, as well as the fact that he's not able to sleep. We also know that he is using a short-acting opiate analgesic, which in itself should be problematic. The other thing that we need to be concerned about is that we're looking at four months post his uh, his uh, procedure. So that's a long time to be taking an opiate analgesic for a procedure that normally should settle down. So let's kind of work through this. So I have a universal approach to all pain. And that is that the important thing we have to do is be able to sit back and listen to the patient's pain story. So be very open-minded, be very curious about what they're experiencing, and try not to bring judgment into it. So this is a really important starting point. So listening to their pain story. The other thing that we need to acknowledge is that the suffering that the patient is experiencing is very real for them. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything dangerous or bad. And I think some of the challenges that we have as health professionals is that we feel that if we acknowledge that suffering, then somehow we have to take that suffering away. When in fact, what patients want us to do is to be able to listen to them and to acknowledge that this is significant for them, regardless of that mechanism. So the next step is always to examine them carefully. And this is where we really need to ask ourselves, what type of pain are we managing? 
Is there anything in that exam that suggests that there, because this is where it can be very valuable to have another pair of eyes, even though that patient has been seen and assessed by the uh, specialist, you as a healthcare provider or clinician, whether that's a family physician or in the emergency department, get to really start from square one. So you want to examine that knee very, very carefully to make sure that there is no new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease that might be happening. So in other words, is this pain acute? Is it chronic? Um, so those are two really important distinction. And this is where I often will bring in, is it the opioid that is also doing it? So is it acute pain? Is it chronic pain? Or is it pain related to the opiate? We often call this opiate-induced hyperalgesia. And a couple of things that might help you sort that out is where the distribution of pain is. So if that distribution has changed from the beginning, uh, meaning that it's a little bit more diffuse, patient is feeling it all over, um, so the pain uh, experience has changed since they've been on the opioid, then that is opiate-induced hyperalgesia. So the most important thing we can offer that patient is an opiate rotation as well as a possible taper. And we'll get into the taper in a second. The other thing that we want to ask ourselves, the next step, so the first step is to listen. The second step is to acknowledge suffering. And the third is to examine them carefully so that you know what type of pain you're dealing with. The fourth step is ask yourself, have you maximized uh, non-pharmacological therapies for this patient? So this is where you need to step back and look at some of the pain protective behaviors that the patient may be using to manage their knee pain. So are they walking funny? Are they hunched over? All these things put an added strain on that knee. They also put an added strain on their back, on their shoulders. Um, so this is where you see the patient kind of hunched over. Or the other scenario that I often see in patients with knees in particular is that they're really, really having difficulty bending the knee. So they just want to keep the knee extended. So that in itself, especially when they're trying to walk or move up, up and down stairs, also puts an, an abnormal stress on that knee. It's not healthy for that knee to experience that kind of weight bearing when that knee is extended. And often that pain will radiate up into the hip as well as to the lower, bar, lower back. It's also a really good opportunity to explore some of the thinking of the patient regarding what the impact of that knee pain is to them. And this is where you can get into this worst case scenario thinking, which may be tied into things around work, around financial stresses, or that something really is bad happening in that knee that nobody is picking up. So it's important to explore some of those, uh, those experiences or feelings that the patient uh, may be experiencing. And then you want to look at things like, are there interventional things that we can be doing? Um, is there uh, things like physiotherapy, you know, acupuncture? Um, does this patient require strengthening of the, uh, the muscles that surround that knee? Um, those are the things that we want to be exploring with that patient. The other piece of this that's really important, it really comes into your differential diagnosis. So this patient has had pain for four months. So it's possible that this patient actually has pain sensitization or chronic pain that is actually occurring. So the definition of chronic pain is pain that persists beyond the expected time of healing. So usually that time frame is about three months. So it's really important early on to sort of bring it into that conversation. What we know about acute pain is that it's more about those nociceptive circuitries that are contributing to that pain experience. Whereas with persistent pain, it's around the sensitization. So this allows us to think about things like topicals. If you've got peripheral sensitization or an amplification that's happening, sometimes a topical that 
contains some amitriptyline. Noratriptyline can be very beneficial to that patient. But it's also trying to bring in that conversation of how the pain system can become amplified, especially around that uncertainty, unpredictability, that fear about what's going on in that knee. And also, how safe does the patient feel when they're up and around? If that patient is terrified of falling, that becomes a real important touch point that needs to be explored and how we can help that patient be up and around and active, but feeling safe when they're up and around. We can also explore other types of pharmacological therapies. So if this patient is developing that pain chronification, which is really that sensitization that happens around glial cell dysregulation, then it's important to start looking at therapies that are going to work in the nervous system. So this would be something like tricyclic antidepressants. So rather than think about, because the tendency we have is when the patient comes in and says they can't sleep, oftentimes we may be reaching for those benzodiazepine, which is really not what we want to be doing, especially in a patient that's taking opiate analgesics. So this is where you can bring in a tricyclic antidepressant like amitriptyline at a small dose, 10 milligrams. And start them at that point, and that way you're going to help with the sedation piece as well. So those are things that you want to start looking at, therapies that are going to be more targeted to sensitization at this point. When we look at the opiate analgesic, we want to risk stratify that patient for harm. So risk stratification is really how we balance benefit and risk for that patient. So Doug is a 37-year-old male. So when I do an opiate risk tool, his risk is actually very low for a substance use disorder, although he is in a concerning age group. Remember now, 90% of all addiction happens under the age of 35. So his risk is higher because he's younger, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Um, so we need to be uh, concerned about what we're actually, uh, you know, in terms of how we're managing that risk. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there for a second. We also want to look at the risk around cannabinoids. So it's not just risk stratifying for opiate analgesics. You want to risk stratify for cannabinoids as well. So it's just not that you wouldn't prescribe to that patient, but you want to be able to manage that risk. And then the sixth step is to manage the risk by mapping out an approach to the opioid or the cannabinoid. So mapping is really a term that I like to use that talks about monitoring for compliance and adherence, adjust immediately if there are any concerns, uh, and prescribe using principles of harm reduction. So harm reduction is really about trying to reduce the risk of complications related to the opiate analgesic. All right, so if we just want to really quickly review that, you want to listen to the patient's pain story, we want to acknowledge suffering, we want to examine them carefully, we also want to maximize non-pharmacological and pharmacological therapies that are targeted to the type of pain, we want to risk stratify the patient for harm if opi opioids or cannabinoids are considered, and we want to manage that risk by mapping out an approach. Uh, for these high-risk pharmacology. And here's the good thing, is that we do this every day with all types of other high-risk pharmacology. And I love to use the example of Coumadin. So Coumadin uh, or Warfarin or any of the DOAX, any of these medications that we use to keep the blood thin, put the patient at risk for complications related to bleeding. So we risk stratify those patients looking at things like age, looking at renal function, you know, all those kinds of things. When we're looking at risk associated with opiate analgesics, we're often looking at age, we're looking at previous history, we're looking at family history, we're looking at adverse childhood experiences, and we're also looking at that fear or worst case scenario thinking, which all increase the risk of maladaptive use of these uh, high-risk pharmacologies. 
All right. So let's just focus in on the opiate for a second. And um, what we want to do with this patient is try and approach the opiate conversation in a way that does not bring judgment or stigma. So this patient is doing the best they can with the information that they have and the knowledge that they have. So from their perspective, they are managing their pain because this is what the health professionals have encouraged them to do. So they're not really understanding uh, the challenges associated with these opiate analgesics. They're feeling it and they're living it, but they're really not understanding how the behavior of these medications can actually start to contribute to the chaos that they are experiencing with respect to pain. So we want to use a very non-judgmental approach to when we bring these conversations. I find being curious is really important. So I often will say to the patient, you know, tell me how this medication is helping you. So I'm assuming we're using it. So I don't say assuming. I know that you're using the medication to manage your pain. Does the medication do anything else for you? So this is a really important question to ask the patient because sometimes the part of the brain that gets stimulated is this energy part of the brain. So it's important to bring that into the conversation. Not only are they using it for pain, but they're also finding that it's the only way that they can get energy and that they feel that they can do things. So this is when I'm having that conversation about the nature of an opiate analgesic, we start to understand how those symptoms start to drive sort of an increase in the use of the medication, uh, especially around the short-acting medication. We also want to explore that ambivalence with the patient. So looking at the pros and cons of the uh, opiate analgesic in particular, so how is it helping you with your pain? Does it do anything else for you, which I just talked about? And then also saying, how is it not helping? You would be surprised how many patients say it's not helping me at all. And they really want to be tapered, but they feel that there's no other way that they're going to be able to get control of this pain. So here's where I often start to have that conversation. So I want to develop an exit strategy with the patient that does not abandon them. So it's really important. So let's just look at how this opioid is helping or not helping. And then we want to develop an exit strategy with the patient uh, that does not abandon them. So does that exit strategy include how we taper the patient or do we give them an adequate opiate trial, which we'll talk about here in a second, or if this patient has an opiate use disorder, are we ready to offer them or to link them to someone who can offer them opiate agonist therapy, either methadone or suboxone? And what do we do if the patient is not ready for that? So if the patient is not ready for an opiate agonist therapy, are there other ways that we can stabilize that patient? Um, so it's, it's really important that we start talking about those things early on. So the first thing I always do too is to make sure that the patient is taking what I'm prescribing. So this is where our monitoring should have been happening. So you might end up doing a urine drug test. And we did talk about how to do urine drug screening and monitoring in a previous podcast if you want to go back there. What I do find is that the point of care testing or the immunoassays are not that specific, especially for these semi-synthetic opiates, that I often will send the urine for mass spectrometry. So I will do that as a routine just to be sure that the patient is taking that opiate analgesic. The other way you can ensure that is to get the patient to bring in the opioids and do a pill count halfway through the prescription. So this is to make sure that there is no diversion happening. And then I'm looking at that readiness to change. Is the patient wanting to taper? Is the patient looking at trying a trial or is this patient um, concerning for an opiate use disorder? And I think the most important thing is we do need to get good at talking about opioids with patient. 
So here's the conversation, how I normally start this conversation with patients. So I know that, so the conversation might start, I know that you're using this opioid for pain. Does it do anything else for you? So they might say it gives them energy. So then I start to say, okay, so 100% of patients, when they take an opiate analgesic, 100% of patients are going to get tolerance. So what does tolerance mean? Tolerance means as your body uses this medication, it gets used to it in order to get relief of that pain or to feel that energy benefit, you need to take more of the medication to get the same effect. So 100% of patients, when they take an opiate analgesic, will develop something called dependency. So dependency is not addiction. Dependency means that when you take the patient, take the medication long enough, and I pull that medication away, you're going to feel withdrawal. So what does withdrawal, because most patients are not thinking about I'm in withdrawal, when they're using that medication for pain, what does that feel like to them? Well, it feels like I've got worsening pain. It also feels like I've got worsening, uh, I just have no energy. I just feel like a bag of hoop. So I just can't get up and move. So that's what that withdrawal is going to feel like to that patient. They may also feel quite anxious. They're also going to find, especially when you look at Doug's case, he's piling up his opiate analgesic short acting at nighttime. So what's going to happen is he's going to get this major blast of his opiate analgesic. So if he's taking up to three, that's 30 milligrams of a morphine equivalent. Now, mind you, that would increase his risk of developing things like sleep apnea. But uh, so that needs to be monitored as well. But he's taking this big blast of short acting medication. And within two hours, he's going to start to experience withdrawal. So he's going to wake up. And what's he going to feel? He's going to feel anxious. He's going to feel more pain. He's going to feel terrible. So he might find himself taking another medication, uh, which kind of leads to that cycle where they start to run out early. So I just want to come back too to the, the reality is that short acting opioids, especially when patients have been using them, for, it's totally appropriate early in the treatment of a patient when you're using a short-acting opioid for acute pain, but ideally you want them off that opioid within a week to two weeks because of that dependency and that withdrawal factor that can drive the use. And in fact, most uh, guidelines now, uh, you know, safer opioid guidelines will talk about three days, especially if you're looking at something like an arthroscope. And the question is whether or not you need to use that opiate analgesic anyway. But this is this is for another discussion, another podcast. And every patient is going to be individual. They're going to be unique in their needs. Um, but I think what we have to do is set up realistic expectations for the patient, as well as be ready to remove that opioid when we set up that uh, expectation. So um, yeah, so so that that nature of them is this is not about the patient. It's about the nature of the opiate analgesic. This is how they behave. It's just like when I say to a patient. We're prescribing you Coumadin. One of the risk factors with Coumadin is that you can have a higher risk of bleeding, especially if you add in certain types of things. So we, we know about the diet, we know about Tylenol, you know, things like that. So patients have certain expectations, what they should be watching out for, um, how they should be managing that. This is the important thing around the conversation with the opiate analgesics. So what we decide to do with Doug, so let's come back to Doug's case, because I think there is a really a couple of interesting things that we can look at. So the conversation with Doug would happen around, okay, what, you cannot cut this guy off. He's been on this medication for four months, but I think he needs to understand what is happening and what may be driving his pain and then find out where he is regarding tapering or how you might uh, manage him or how you might 
assume that there may be some risk around substance use disorder. And this is where you might find this in the uh, urine drug testing if it tests positive for cocaine or other things that are in there. That's a really high risk feature. So we're going to assume that those risk factors are not there for Doug, that Doug is literally uh, responsible uh, and using his medications in the way that he should be using. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation about switching him to long acting. And we can do different things. We can use hydromorphone or what we can do, especially if I'm looking at tapering a patient. So we say that that goal is to taper is I switch them to a morphine equivalent drug and I use a long acting morphine called Cadian. So Cadian is a once a day dispensing. You have to be very careful though in patients that have been on short acting for a while and you're switching them to long acting because they have been so used to using the medication in a way that is really not safe, but they've got such significant tolerance that they feel that, you know, they're able to manage that. Well, they're, they're not going to have that same understanding of the long-acting opioid. So we have to be very careful how we dispense that long-acting opioid and how we have that conversation with the patient. But I find it so much easier to taper somebody when they're on a long-acting, because when you leave them on short-acting, their pain is being driven by withdrawal. And it's very, very hard to come off of a short-acting opioid in that way. So he needs to understand that. So the other thing that's really important when you do these opiate rotations is that, especially if you're rotating them to another opioid. So if we look at the morphine equivalent that we talked about with Doug, uh, he uh, was on a 40 milligram morphine equivalent. Well, when you're switching them to an, an alternative opioid, especially a different type, you can actually drop down their uh, morphine equivalent because of cross tolerance. When I'm prescribing that Cadian to Doug, I would drop them down probably to 30 milligrams. Some people talk about half. Some people talk about a third. When I'm working with palliative care populations, I tend to do it by a third. I tend not to drop it by half because the withdrawal can be very distressing. And as you know, in the brain, our brain cannot tell the difference between that physical pain, that emotional pain, and what it feels like in withdrawal. It's all part of that alarm system. So that can actually contribute to more suffering especially if we don't do this very carefully. And he would be very tolerant because he's been on that opiate for so long. But the first thing you need to do is make sure he's taking what you're prescribing because you don't want to switch him to a long acting if that hasn't been um, ascertained. So, and then what we're going to do is taper him very slowly and you work with Doug. If he wants to be tapered quickly, then we taper him quickly. So that may be every week. Sometimes I might help them manage the withdrawal with a little bit of quantity and I don't leave them on it long term. So looking at a 0.1 milligram dosing of quantity. And, uh, and then we just taper him off. So this may actually help control his pain, but also improve his sleep, which is kind of interesting. So let's just come to sleep for a second. So we've looked at pain. And now what we want to do is look at sleep. So it is incredibly common to see disruption of sleep when patients are left on short-acting opioid analgesics. Any kind of dis a substance that's going to disrupt how your brain works, how sedation works. You know, I think about alcohol, a few drinks at night, may help you fall asleep, but it's not effective sleep. But commonly, sleep is disrupted with short-acting opiate analgesics. And what I love to ask patients when I'm trying to get a little bit of a sleep history is to ask them if they were ever a good sleeper as a child. And why that can sometimes be useful is that it pulls in those adverse childhood experiences conversation. So if that patient looked at me and said, well, I was never a good sleeper as a kid, and then my next question would be, was there a lot of disruption in the home at the time? You know, was this uh, an issue around unpredictability around a parent 
or uncertainty around, you know, alcohol use. I mean, there are all kinds of different things that could be happening. And um, so why that's important, especially if you bring out a trauma story around these adverse childhood experiences, one of the medications that can be helpful is a drug called prazosin. And what prazosin literally does, it just changes the alarm chemistry. So especially if most of the trauma occurred at nighttime, because what our brain has learned to do is to set that alarm off as soon as it gets dark, as soon as we try and close the close our eyes. So prazosin works best if there is some nightmares associated with that uh, with um, that trauma. Um, but it I use this a fair bit. I mean, there's some significant disruption and trauma that has occurred to multiple individuals that I've seen in correctional institutions. Many of those young men and women have been there because of significant uh, childhood experiences. So I think we need to be very sensitive to those. We also need to be respectful of their story if they're willing to tell us that story, but also be able to offer them treatment that is not going to put them at risk. So asking them if they were a good sleeper as a child, then prazosin could be something. Also, we could ask ourselves, is this opiate-mediated sleep disruption, which we talked about uh, a few minutes ago, and this is where I would switch the patient to a long-acting opiate analgesic. So for the patient on hydromorph uh, short-acting, you could look at short-acting hydromorph cot, especially if you see the goals of care to leave that patient on that medication for whatever reason, although really at this stage, the patient should be tapered. It really is not, it doesn't have to be rushed, especially if you're the family physician, but that should be something built into that conversation that you're trying to, and that care plan that you're trying to develop with that patient. So there's also wonderful web pages on sleep hygiene um, that can, you can link that patient to. And I'm just thinking of sleep well that's done through Dalhousie University. What you do find is that some of these techniques around cognitive behavioral therapy can be difficult to access. But one of the most powerful tools is if you can get patients using their breath to link to mindfulness. And that is something that I find very effective even for me. If you're somebody with a busy brain, uh, sometimes the breathing can be incredibly beneficial, especially when you're trying to, your brain is trying to find that place of calm. Now, it does take practice. It's not something that comes naturally. But there are nice YouTube videos out there that people can use. But this webpage that's put out by uh, Dalhousie University, which is Sleepwell, has a lot of great, uh, great techniques that can also be used. Um, but I think what's important is how we communicate that disruption for the patient to help them understand why sleep is so elusive for them. Uh, so the, when I think about Doug, I think about that short-acting opiate analgesic and how that can be contributing. So let's just summarize some of the things that we went through. So what we want to be able to do with all of our patients who are coming to us with significant suffering is really not recovering in the way that we should, especially from a uh, interventional procedure like an arthroscope is we need to listen to their pain story. We need to acknowledge suffering. We need to examine them carefully. So what type of pain? Because your goals of care are going to really depend on those, uh, what type of pain. So if we're looking at chronic pain and you're using pharmacotherapy, if you get a 30% reduction, that is considered successful because you want to improve the function of that patient. But also recognizing that opiate analgesics often are not effective in chronic pain populations and maybe putting patients more at risk. And I think we understand now that there is some literature around that. Now, these patients that have been opiates uh, for a long time are what we call legacy patients. They require a very distinct approach uh, in terms of how we want to manage them. Then we want to maximize non-pharmacological therapies 
making sure that we're picking up on those pain protective behaviors, the muscle work, uh, how we can help the patients adapt that and look at pharmacological therapies that focus more in on the pain sensitization. We want to risk stratify them for harm. Uh, and then we want to manage the risk by mapping out an approach to the opioids. So monitoring the patient, adjusting immediately if there's any concerns or uh, aberrancy, and prescribing using principles of harm reduction. And harm reduction is really about reducing uh, the numbers of pills that the patient has access to, but also using therapy in a very specific way. And I just want to add another point, too, that I probably should have mentioned early on, is that when you're switching a patient who's been prescribed short-acting opioids for a long period of time, and I see this consistently in the chronic pain population when I see them in the pain clinic, which I won't see in the palliative care population, is that if I try and do a rotation to long-acting opioids, often the patient does not like that effect. So I think what happens to patients with chronic pain, and I'm just putting it out there, not sure if other clinicians have had this experience, or even pay, I know patients have told me consistently that they don't like being switched to a long-acting because um, they find it doesn't work. But I think what's happening with patients with persistent pain, because they've had such significant pain and significant pain flare-ups, they have a tool that they know is effective that's going to work, and they feel it working quickly. And so that's why I think it's very difficult for them to go on a long-acting which you don't feel that that rapid onset. And so, but that in itself can be problematic in the long term. It's not good to leave patients on short acne. I would never do that to a palliative care patient. Uh, I shouldn't be doing that to a chronic pain patient, but just prepare yourself for the fact. And I often will have that conversation with the patient that it's not going to feel the same when we switch into that long acting. It doesn't mean that you're not getting that medication. And here's why we need to do it at this stage. I don't do that early on, but I do do it later on. So that mapping is really important that we need to set that up even before we start prescribing these medications. And then when the patient starts to get disruption in sleep, always ask yourself, you know, is this uh, related to the opioid? Is it uh, related to um, that disruption that often happens with short-acting medication? But also, are we contributing to sleep apnea? So it's really important to bring in pharmacology, such as a tricyclic, uh, at nighttime to help with sleep. But also, uh, if the patient and you can work on this, is to find out what you need to be doing about the opiate analgesic. So is the patient going to so is the patient going to require a taper? How you would do that? Is the patient going to need a more adequate trial of opiate? So maximizing them to that 50 to 90 milligram, 90 milligram being the maximum, although with the and that's on the way up of the opioid, but if this is a legacy patient that's been on high doses, then that's not going to be your target unless the patient is wanting to go there. So you're trying to find the least amount of opiate analgesic that is going to keep the patient functional and not uh, distressed if they are a legacy patient. But if I'm doing a new onset of an opiate analgesic, then nine, 50 to 90 would be my maximum. And obviously, I would try and avoid and limit any sedation a hypnotic medication into that mix because the risk for the patient of dying is so much higher. And we've got lots of literature that shows that. So we're going to stop there and hopefully you found that helpful. I'm going to try and bring in some cases that I commonly see, um, obviously keeping the privacy of the patient at bay. But if you have any extra, any interesting cases that you'd like to discuss, then they're open for uh, any kind of um, conversation. And I'm happy to take you there. I'm not going to say I always have the answers but I think every case is going to be unique and individual. 
How we approach it is going to be unique and individual, but don't ever be afraid to reach out to any of your colleagues who are open to discussing these cases. And what we'll do is we'll keep on keeping on. So bye for now. Take care, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.